guest today is someone I have been hoping that we could get on the podcast for multiple years now. He's a world-renowned economic historian. And uh, Mark and I have a selfish reason why we have been wanting uh, to talk to him, which is a historical project that we did multiple years ago, many, many years ago, on the origins of the Paripasu Clause. And we were looking around for people who would be able to guide us to bond contract terms from the late 1700s and early 1800s. All that we had ever been able to find was from the early 1900s at that point. And our dear friend at USC, uh, Dan Clareman, said there's one person, there's one person who knows everything and is incredibly generous. And that's Larry Neal at the University of Illinois. And since then, um, we have gotten to know Larry's amazing work better. And so we're absolutely thrilled to have Larry. Larry, uh, welcome to our podcast. And thank you so much for sharing your new book project with us. Well, <laughs> thank you for a very generous uh, introduction. I had forgotten my connection with USC so many years ago, but I did enjoy the visits. <laughs> and uh, I look forward to, uh, and I'm really excited that uh, you are showing interest in my latest book projects. I'm, I'm hoping that this is just the beginning of something big. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Well, if, if, if you're enthusiastic about this, Mark and I will be bothering you lots and lots. But just to give some background, and also I'll, I'll try to connect it over the course of the podcast to our selfish interests in this topic. The, the background, as I understand it, is that you have come across material in your archival work that gives us a somewhat different story about the Louisiana Purchase. And uh, I grew up in India, so the Louisiana Purchase is not something that I got taught about in school, but one does hear about this giant acquisition of land that happens and the, the, it sort of doubles the size of the US and it happens at a very low price. And uh, it's all about Thomas Jefferson being so clever and outwitting the French. And uh, you know, in, in law schools, you hear about um, how he sort of it was potentially a constitutional violation, what he did, and yet he did it anyway. And so that that's the way in which I've heard about the Louisiana Purchase. And my understanding from your manuscript, your wonderful manuscript, is that the story is more complicated in terms of the key players that financial actors were arguably the ones who did a lot of the, the making this happen. Is that, can we start uh, around, around that point for our conversation? Uh, sure. The, I'm, I might go on too long here because there is a, uh, a lot to, to, uh, to deal with, uh, but I'll try to focus on just the finance uh, parts. I think the 
controversy over Jefferson um, starts in 1800 when uh, it's a very tight uh, election. Uh, in fact, under the terms then, Je Jefferson and his reputed uh, running mate, Aaron Burr, as vice president, end up having exactly the same uh, number of electoral votes um, for the head office. And uh, so it becomes a question in, for the House of Representatives. I would have think that would have been the key uh, issue uh, being covered in law school <laughs> uh, courses. Hamilton uh, plays a key role in the background by essentially telling some of the Federalists, oh gosh, if you have to choose between those two jerks, uh, go with Jefferson. At least he has some principles that he uh, likes to talk about from time to time, whereas Aaron Burr has none whatsoever, which historically seems to be uh, uh, the case that Jefferson talks a good line about his principles, but on the other hand, he is a slave owner, da 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 da. Um, in the background in Europe, we still have um, the beginning of the Napoleonic Wars because Napoleon has just seized power in France and has shown that he's actually uh, a, a very capable military leader and is basically uh, establishing control of uh, Fran France over Italy and uh, Belgium, what would become Belgium and uh, the Netherlands. So that's in, in the background. In the near point to uh, the US, there's a lot of war going on in the Caribbean. Uh, a lot of it is centered uh, uh, about the uh, revolution that has just started, is gaining momentum uh, in Haiti, what's now called Haiti, was then Santo Domingo or San Domingue. Um, and the U.S. had been playing a kind of an interesting role under the previous administration of John Adams by providing uh, material uh, in support of the ex-slave, uh, black uh, revolutionaries led by Toussaint Louverture in the north part of Haiti uh, in return for having access to the uh, sugar uh, and rum uh, and molasses uh, uh, pr products that uh, they would pay for and keep uh, Toussaint's operation uh, going on the north part of the revolution. That had eventually ends up helping Toussaint succeed in establishing full control over the southern uh, part of uh, Haiti as well. Uh, it turns out with some help from uh, some US uh, warships that happened to be in the area, mainly because uh, they were trying to defend American merchant shipping from attack by privateers, mainly at that time, French privateers. So that's kind of the, ba the, the, the background. Uh, the U.S. has basically uh, dealt with the territory up to the Mississippi and south of the Great Lakes and going down to a line that's about the current uh, northern border of the state of Florida, but uh, the Floridas and uh, everything to the west of, uh, of the Mississippi River uh, is nominally under the control of Spain. 
Now, I did want to make one point, and I try to make it clear in the book. Uh, this purchase of the Louisiana Territory is not really a land sale. Uh, nobody really has title to the land. <laughs> De facto, if you were talking about legal terms, consuetude of uh, the land belongs to the various scattered uh, Native American tribes. What the Europeans have is the right of conquest, if you will, the possibility of exercising sovereignty over the land and then establishing land rights and property rights uh, in, in this territory. So that's what's really being sold is uh, transferred is the right of conquest, if you will, uh, that's, French uh, to that, the Americans. That's fascinating. Okay, I this this is just, we could spend the whole time talking just about the sale of the right of conquest. I'm, I am right. so embarrassed that I did not realize that it wasn't a, a sale of sovereignty was the sale of the right to take away sovereignty from the Native American tribes. But but um, before actually before we get to the financial uh, transaction, that you've taken us down to a point where uh, I want to ask about this in the book. I think in the draft that we saw, it's only briefly mentioned, unless I missed a more of a discussion. Right. You talk about how th there was this question about whether the US should just take New Orleans, which was the, the most important uh, piece of the Louisiana Purchase, as I understand it, or buy it. And this sort of... Um, like fight for it or take it. And I'm guessing that the context was that the French were really, really busy with other wars. And so maybe it would be easy to just grab it. Is this something as a historical matter that countries were like always contemplating, shall we fight a war and take stuff from the others or shall we buy it? And is, is, there, is there more than you talk about in this sort of in yeah. these discussions <laughs> among, uh, you know, between Jefferson and his advisors about, you know, how much will it cost us to fight a war? Uh, how, how much will we have to pay? I haven't seen any of that in any of the literature. Yours is the first mention. Oh, uh, there's a, a long uh, discussion of that in the biography of uh, Pierre Samuel Dupont de Nemours. Let's call him Dupont. <laughs> um, who uh, is the uh, basically the the father of the uh, Dupont uh, dynasty that uh, uh, comes to be established uh, in the United States, mainly to to set up the powder factory that uh, is the start of the Dupont fortune, and uh, was was done under uh, Jefferson's uh, administration, probably one of the uh, most uh, capable things that, that, that he did in, in the administration. Um, what's going on is that uh, there's a tremendous amount of migration going on uh, from the east side of the Appalachian Mountains into this area that has been acquired uh, as a result of the peace treaty in 1783. 
So there's a lot of uncontrolled settlement that's going on. Some of it's going a lot from uh, um, Western Virginia into <laughs> across the mountains so that eventually that gives us the new state of West Virginia and into Kentucky and Tennessee. And it, they're going along basically the river routes once they can cross the uh, 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 mountains and the uh, Adirondacks or the Appalachians, uh, then settlement goes along the river routes, the Ohio River, and then across the Mississippi, the Tennessee River, the Cumberland. Um, and then, uh, it, as we all know, water flows downhill. So if they're going to establish uh, products for sale, basically they ship them downstream and the access then finally to the ocean would be available at New Orleans. France does not have control of the Louisiana territory at that point. As part of the peace treaty in uh, 1783, uh, they had turned over the eastern part of the Louisiana territory to the United States, but the western part they'd given to Spain. So, in fact, at the time we're talking about, Spain has control uh, nominally uh, of New Orleans and the Floridas. Given that this is uh, not a very profitable area for Spanish, uh, for the Spanish Empire, it's very weakly defended. Consequently, uh, the growing number of uh, pioneers coming in to settle in Kentucky, especially uh, upstream from New Orleans, uh, means that, and they're all armed, and they're basically fighting off the Native Americans to seize control and establish their uh, property rights. They are fully capable, it would appear, of going down and taking control of New Orleans by force. And that's that would, in fact, be uh, something that's quite quite feasible and, and possible. And in fact, that's that's what's going on in uh, Europe uh, at the same time as well. And by the European powers, wherever they happen to be in Asia or the or uh, South America. So, Larry, this is um, so far we have been focusing on some of the at least to me, some of the lesser known uh, political and economic aspects of the transaction. And yet the primary theme that I take away from the manuscript is that people have been giving too little attention, not just to the financial aspects of, of the Louisiana Purchase, but to the role played by a number of overlooked parties, including the underwriters in, in this case. And in my, in my really simplified understanding of the Louisiana Purchase to the extent it's about finance at all. It's about, you know, well, this was a time when the U.S. established a, a track record as a, a credible international borrower. But what I take away from the, the manuscript is that there, that perspective is at best incomplete. So can you give us a a sense of what's missing from the traditional historical accounts here? Yes, the thing that might be missing from most of them with the focus on uh, such a charismatic figure as Thomas Jefferson 
is the key role that's actually being played by uh, Jefferson's Secretary of the Treasury, Albert Gallatin. So in the background, and I'm realizing uh, I need to, <laughs> there needs to be another draft for sure uh, to uh, pay more attention to these, to these issues uh, because they are really, really fundamental and I've just taken too much for granted, I think. Um, assuming that every reader would be fully uh, aware of that context. Uh, the point is that the key on Hamilton's uh, public finance was the assumption of the state debts, but also of the Continental Congress's accumulated debts, which had been in basic default um, and increasingly uh, uh, in default uh, towards the end of the war. And what Hamilton did as part of his plan uh, was to say, we're going to pay back, we're going to redeem all of those uh, certificates that were issued by the Continental Congress. And we're going to uh, add in the interest, which was basically ascribed to them of 6% each year, but it wasn't actually paid. It was just that, okay, we owe that much more now, if we ever get around to paying it off. And what Gallatin's project was, was to actually accomplish that feat of paying off the accumulated federal debt that Alexander Hamilton uh, had uh, placed uh, uh, as, as a burden on the U.S. Treasury. So that's what's going on in the background is that the merchants of the U.S. are prospering, uh, actually starting to send ships to China. And then the other key to Hamilton's brilliant plan was to make sure that customs revenues were totally, wherever uh, uh, foreign trade entered into the new continental United States, uh, would be under the control of the federal government and they would be applied. So Gallatin uh, takes this and has a surplus that he uses very conscientiously to pay off uh, the accumulated uh, debt left over thereby laying the basis for really secure credibility of the future issues of U.S. federal debt. So I, I think I probably, uh, you know, I, as I've been doing background reading, I've been appreciating Gallatin more and more. Initially, I didn't care for him because he was determined to re remove all the debt, <laughs> not just that debt that uh, uh, was left over from the Continental Congress, but also the uh, the debt of the individual states that had been assumed by the federal government. Indeed, he's reducing the amount of wonderful collateral <laughs> United States sovereign debt. But I think the point is we were not there yet. Um, and uh, it, it took Gallatin's uh, efforts uh, uh, to do that. And he's been so successful when the deal uh, for the Louisiana Purchase is finally presented to him, he actually offers to Alexander Baring, I'll do the whole thing. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll market, you know, our U.S. debt here. <laughs> and, 
and and uh, and then let you and I'll buy it off from you and uh, give you enough that you can pay off the French. So um, Alexander had already made commitments to uh, buyers uh, back in Europe and given the communication likes at that time, he wasn't willing to undo the agreements that he knew that his father <laughs> had entered into uh, months earlier. So as we, as we go into break, I'm wondering if you can, and I think I've, I've taken us off topic a little bit. I'm wondering if we can, uh, before we go into break, hear a little bit about the role of the underwriters in uh, connection with the Louisiana Purchase in particular. So Barings and Hope and & Co. in Amsterdam, you found such rich archival materials about their role. And so I'm hoping you can give us a sense of their importance to the Louisiana Purchase as we go into break. Well, many years ago, I was uh, smarting from attacks that had been made on my first book, uh, on the rise of financial capitalism, where I argued that there was a lot of flight capital coming into London during the Napoleonic Wars to escape uh, the uh, confiscation of uh, properties uh, by the uh, French armies when they moved into Italy or into uh, Germany and the Netherlands. And so I thought, well, I don't have enough concrete evidence of actual flight capital. So let's go to the Bering Archive uh, because they're big international uh, dealers at the time. And they would be obvious uh, people for uh, handling flight capital from the European continent. So I, I spent a full day and I had very good cooperation from the archivist at the time. What I found was uh, bits and pieces of flight capital coming on, uh, under the hands of the uh, uh, bearing firm. But the most striking thing was the amount of capital coming in from the United States into London and then going to France, <laughs> quite the reverse of my initial hypothesis. So it was a bust uh, in terms of my original project. So I left discouraged. As I was walking out, the archivist said, you know, you're an American. It's good you're interested in this. We have a lot of material on the Louisiana Purchase. Someone should take a look at that sometime. <laughs> that was over 30 years ago. So eventually I did get back. Uh, and this time I, I asked the archivist, uh, a new younger archivist, uh, to uh, let me look at the materials on the Louisiana Purchase. It turns out on the centennial celebration of the uh, Louisiana Purchase back in 1903, Barings was at that time just recovering from a serious bankruptcy uh, from their failure in 1890. So one of the uh, lead figures, Lord Northbrook, uh, decided to try to put together to, to, to restore some of the luster to the bearing name by looking at uh, what they had done to finance the Louisiana Purchase. So he put together all the material that he thought was relevant to the Louisiana Purchase and put it into a separate folder. And that was the folder that I was able to look at and, uh, and uh, uh, exploit for the purposes of, of this book. Back to your original question, uh, what was the role of the underwriters? It 
looks like in the material that Lord Northbrook accumulated that it was pure accident um, that there was a brief period of a truce between London and Paris of uh, the Treaty of the Truce of Amiens. And Alexander Baring and his uh, family, which included at the time his father-in-law, uh, William Bingham, uh, were touring in Paris, uh, spending holidays. And this is the latter part of uh, 1802. And uh, that's when they're so well connected. Uh, they conversed with the American ambassador, Robert, R. Robert Livingston at, uh, at the time, and learned about this possibility of, of a, uh, uh, the US actually buying New Orleans instead of uh, taking it by force. Wow. So that's kind of the background on it. Uh, it became a very complicated deal to see they're feeling their way at first how to deal with each uh, government on each side uh, and make each one happy and keep but keep themselves in the center of the transaction so that uh, uh, all the uh, profits from the dealing taking on the transactions costs uh, of such a complicated deal would uh, uh, go to them wow this is um it, it, it it's such a cool story about your going to the archives to look for one thing and then finding another thing and oh well i didn't find it i was told about it <laughs> you were told about it i think of that somebody in the archives telling you about it and you realizing that this is worth looking at that's that 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 is your finding it but we should go to a break and okay. uh, then we'll get back on the financial details uh, of bearings and hope after the break So Larry, can you, I, I hate to keep pestering about the role of the underwriters, but I find it so, so interesting that here we have a major, major transaction, uh, at least from in terms of its political and economic implications. The US does not strike me as an especially credible borrower at this point, but Napoleon has a dramatic need for money to finance his continental adventures. What, it seems like the underwriters are playing uh, an even more important role here than usual. And I'm wondering if it would be too much to say that this is really a, a kind of classic transaction where the underwriters are lending their reputations to, to the transaction and to the borrower in particular to, to allow the loan to go forward. Is that, is that the right way to think about this? Absolutely. I, I, th I think that really is the, uh, the, the, the way to think about it. And, um, you know, it, this material has been covered in so much depth by so many other uh, eminent historians that I kind of given it short shrift, I guess, but I should, I think I should expand uh, just uh, to, to stimulate people to read some of the other people's work. <laughs> um, the Dutch have established by this time a fantastic reputation with their 
uh, capital market for sovereign debt from all the various uh, principalities and kingdoms in continental Europe. And the lead house that's really established itself by the time of the uh, French Revolution and later when the French Revolution takes over uh, with the Netherlands is Henry Hope and uh, his company. So that's the background is that Henry Hope finally has established uh, relationships with a rising uh, star in the financial community in London, which is uh, Sir Francis Baring. Sir Francis Baring, and his, uh, initially his, uh, one of his brothers. Um, and they've established very good connections. And that's where my two heroes, Alexander Baring, the son of uh, Sir Francis Baring, and Pierre César Labouchere, who is the chief clerk for Henry Hope, uh, get together. And eventually, Pierre César marries uh, the oldest daughter of uh, Sir Francis Baring. So uh, he becomes a brother-in-law uh, to Alexander Baring. But in the background, the two leading figures, Henry Hope, is now in London. But he basically hired a fleet of uh, ships and escorted by uh, an English man of war to bring his uh, wealth, uh, physical wealth, uh, over to England and to set up uh, uh, a lavish estate and then a townhouse as well. But he has all of his contacts that he has established with his customer base for selling parts, bonds that would be uh, parts of the uh, total issue for uh, sovereigns uh, throughout Europe. When Napoleon begins uh, his efforts to uh, control, uh, especially Northern uh, Italy and then parts of Germany, he does not raise money in France. Uh, he doesn't use uh, the technique that the Brits have been using for almost a century of raising money uh, internally uh, on government credit and then using that money uh, to uh, launch a, a, a successful military attack. Instead, he basically seizes his uh, troops and then goes into the foreign territory and lives off the land and then says, if you want me to leave, uh, I'll be happy to leave if you pay me uh, an annual fee. Well, that means the end of the country has to raise its own <laughs> quasi-sovereign uh, debt. And uh, it turns out that the techniques and the customer base that are available in the Netherlands are still there uh, available to do that. And so, uh, they are essentially helping the satellite kingdoms of Napoleon pay tribute to Napoleon through marketing their own sovereign debt, essentially to uh, investors in the Netherlands or investors that the Dutch uh, bankers have identified as uh, 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 good passive investors uh, in uh, these bonds. So that's really the background, and I, I get into a bit of that with Pierre César Labouchere involved in raising uh, the 
bonds for uh, Portugal so that the Portuguese uh, kingdom can fend off uh, Napoleon's invasion, at least for a bit, uh, in 1803. And that's uh, really the success story that uh, Pierre César has done to placate the French uh, sources and then going back to Amsterdam to establish, again, the Hope and Company firm in Amsterdam. This would be in 1803, just before so Larry, uh, we get going into the uh, negotiations for the Louisiana Purchase. So that's where I wanted, wanted us to um, focus in a, a little more on this. My sense is that uh, while the Netherlands had this system in place and they, they, they were able to raise capital, uh, sovereign or quasi-sovereign uh, debt, the sovereign bond market was still really in its infancy. And the US, if one were to look at it, would not have been an important first mover in terms of being one of the first important sovereign issuers. And yet it was. And um, as my understanding is that two things were operating here. One, Francis Baring and uh, Alexander Baring were telling investors in uh, London and maybe the Netherlands, uh, and maybe this was a part of Pierre Lebouchere's role as well, that they would ensure payments. Now, I'm just guessing at this, but I'm reading between the lines uh, of what you said and what's in the book, that they weren't just marketing the bonds for this new country, uh, but, but they were pro providing assurances that we will manage the relationship with this country and make sure that they keep paying. And then on the other side of the transaction, you had France that uh, where Napoleon desperately needed extra capital because even though he was getting essentially protection money, uh, he had more campaigns and needed more short-term immediate capital. So they were also providing that. Is, is that sort of, have I gotten the, the thing that they were doing, right? Because it's not like a, today's underwriter where, you know, I, I say, look, uh, I'll, I'll make my best efforts to sell your bonds, but it might be that nobody will buy them and that's on you. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, basically uh, the story. Well, you think they're, I guess, Trying to think, <laughs> standard th a way to think about uh, a bank's uh, business model is they they lend long and borrow short, and so they always have to worry uh, whether the money they've lent out will be covered, um, or if they'll get a, a withdrawal of their uh, from their short-term uh, lenders. Uh, what we've got here, I think, is uh, a deal where there's a long-term uh, commitment by the United States. And one of the interesting things uh, in the uh, 
uh, bond was to make it non-redeemable. And that was to avoid the risk to a uh, potential investor or having the uh, bond sink in value and then being uh, redeemed and uh, taken away from them, uh, losing then the cash flow from the regular payment of interest. So the US is borrowing long, uh, saying, well, 15 years from now, we'll start paying these bonds off. In the meantime, however, we will be paying 6% on the face value of uh, the bonds uh, on a semi-annual basis. So there's a cash flow coming in, uh, you know, a nice hefty 6% on the uh, uh, face value. Napoleon, however, wants all of the uh, cash value of those bonds very quickly uh, within a period. Initially, it was going to be three years. That was the initial argument by the underwriters that let us have a chance to sell off these bonds and uh, make arrangements with the buyers of the bonds to give us payment in a way that will be satisfying uh, to turn over to France uh, in, in turn. So that was, uh, so it isn't necessarily getting a cash payment from a potential buyer of the bond and then having that available right away to turn over to uh, Napoleon. It was a matter of juggling the possibilities of different kinds of means of payment that the bond buyers would use uh, to complete the transaction on the bond side, but having means of payment then that could be uh, used by the underwriters uh, to pay directly to France or to the French treasury. So I hope I <laughs> haven't muddled up things uh, too much, but you're, uh, Napoleon sees that one of the deals that the Barings uh, had uh, put into place was that interest would start being paid on those bonds immediately. So from the time that uh, they were actually printed up and put on board the uh, ships uh, sailing from uh, the US, uh, they would be then paying interest six months later uh, on the total amount. And that would be distributed through the offices of either Barings in London or Hope and Company in uh, Amsterdam. Have I so I am um, too much, or <laughs> no, no, no. In fact, it's one of the. It's it's astonishing to me how many aspects of this story are, I think, known by people who have looked into it, even um, uh, with some degree of care. But even the notion that the the Louisiana purchase is not a direct transfer of cash or the purchase price from the US to France, I think has been lost in some of the relatively mainstream tellings. There's so much, there's so much of, of, um, of interest here, but I'm hoping that we can uh, circle back as we wrap up the podcast to a part of the context, the historical context you had began with, which is the relationship between the revolution in Haiti and the Louisiana Purchase. The, the revolution in, in Haiti and the 
resulting uh, indemnity that the Haitians agreed to pay France is something that me too and I have been thinking about. And, you know, we had drawn some connections between the Haitian Revolution and the Louisiana Purchase, mainly, uh, you know, the revolution and the the French efforts to restore control over the colony being one of the reasons why the French might have needed the money. But but there was all kinds of stuff that I, I learned reading your manuscript that I hadn't known, including that some of the very early plans for the Louisiana Purchase had the US uh, providing supplies to the French garrison in Haiti uh, as a sort of part of the compensation that the U.S. was going to pay. So I'm hoping as we close out, you could draw those connections for us between uh, the Haitian Revolution and uh, the Louisiana Purchase. Yeah, one more. Let me, since this is our last question, because we Anna will 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 not be happy with us if we uh, oh. go on, but we have so many questions to ask you. But uh, connected directly to what Mark asked, that this one of the backdrops to all of this, as I understand it, is the U.S. at this point owes money to France from France having supported the U.S. in the revolutionary war that isn't that far back in time. And so I was like Mark, I was also really surprised when I was reading about the the plan. You very helpfully give us those initial plans where the payments are described. And one of the plans is, look, we'll give supplies to the French garrison to fight the slave insurrection. And that will be a part of the compensation and then yet in the in the background you have Adams uh, supporting uh, Toussaint Levasseur uh, in his uh, revolution so there's so many moving parts of this but um but but, but I didn't mean I, I, let's go back to Mark's question on Haiti I just wanted to add more more of my interest and I promise this is our last question yes well that uh the failure of the uh, Napoleon's uh, armies to uh, conquer Toussaint Louverture or the remains of the armies that he had uh, developed uh, as he established control over not just Haiti, but also the Dominican Republic at the time. That uh, failure must be what persuaded Napoleon to say, oh, let's give up on that. And uh, let's just get get some money uh, selling off to the uh, Americans and focus on where the real uh, profit is here in Europe. So this one, Napoleon's brother-in-law, General Leclerc, uh, he learns has uh, died of yellow fever, basically. Uh, and he learns about that at the very beginning of the year 1803. Uh, the death occurred in November of 1802. Um, at that point, and he'd been begging Napoleon to recant on the idea of reimposing slavery uh, in the uh, French islands, uh, because that was keeping the uh, Black revolutionaries uh, uh, at full 
full force and, and uh, fury uh, against his troops. His troops are dying off from yellow fever. Um, so uh, when the commander dies, and that's, that's very close to Napoleon, he realizes this is just not going to work. And he has his own troubles uh, still in Europe, because during the Treaty of uh, Amiens, uh, the Brits have been finagling to get Austria and uh, Prussia uh, involved in a coalition against Napoleon. So that's that's really the background where Haiti uh, uh, plays a major role in making Napoleon's decision uh, firm to let the U.S. take not just New Orleans, but all of the Louisiana territory and forget about uh, uh, Haiti and focus on his uh, European adventure. On the, from the underwriter's point of view, right at the beginning, Pierre César does not care at all for that idea about dealing with the merchants. It turns out that's based on his prior experience when he was delegated by uh, Hope and Bering to go along on a uh, shipping adventure into what's now Suriname uh, to carry out a brief uh, occupation by the British on the, uh, uh, Suriname on the coast of South America. And that was when he became very familiar with the quality of merchants dealing with the various Caribbean islands and said, this is a zoo. Uh, this is too complicated. We don't want to get involved <laughs> into that part of a transaction. So uh, I think that's, that's where the Haiti uh, situation comes in. On the one hand, the failure of Napoleon's uh, efforts to uh, conquer uh, Haiti and reestablish slavery. And uh, on the other hand, uh, Levacher's uh, reluctance to get involved in it. There's also a lot of material in the Bering archive uh, from two different sources. One, a merchant dealing in Haiti, uh, hoping that uh, he could restore uh, peace in the put down the revolution and get somebody like uh, Bering's to uh, continue to deal with uh, the very profitable sugar plantations, which were very profitable once slavery was, uh, could be used to uh, produce. And another one uh, from General Maitland, who was uh, commander of the British forces when they were trying to encourage the uh, rebellion or try to establish peace for uh, behalf of the uh, planters in the south uh, part of Haiti. And that's very interesting material. Um, some of which I've transcribed, and I'd be happy to send it to you so you can see. Maitland makes a very interesting argument, by the way, uh, that Toussaint Louverture could be trusted not to invade Jamaica, which was the main concern of the British at the time, that that revolution could spread into the uh, British uh, sugar islands. And uh, also argued that the governor of Jamaica should be willing to arm uh, black soldiers as well uh, to maintain uh, uh, peace in the, and to continue the prosperity of the sugar uh, industry in, in Jamaica. Wow, this is, uh, there's so much for us here. This is just a gold mine. Thank you so much for well, telling that I story, hope... but thank you for coming on the podcast. This has just been fantastic. 
it's such an important part of U.S. history, and yet there are these my people have these very caricatured sort of uh, snapshot understandings of what happened when it's so important in both global history but uh, U.S. history. Uh, so th this has been this has been fantastic, and as you can tell, we're. The, the our work on Haiti made us particularly interesting. Thank you so much. All right. Okay. Thank you, guys. I really thank you so much. Yeah. I've that was it. amazing. Thank you.